If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll hear the second half of our interview with Alan Allport about Britain in World War II. The first half was released yesterday, the 3rd of September, so do catch up on that one first if you haven't done so already. As in episode one, Alan was speaking to our editor, Rob Attar. How close do you think Britain came in 1940 to the possibility of defeat, either, say, through a German invasion, perhaps defeat in the Battle of Britain, or some kind of negotiation with Hitler that some members of the cabinet apparently favoured. Was there any significant prospect that Britain could have lost the war in 1940? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, So I think, you know, there are a number of different moments in 1940 in which I think the the answer to that changes. Um, In recent years, there's been an enormous amount of focus on the secret war cabinet discussions that took place in at the end of May 1940. So this is a few weeks into the German attack on France when things are looking pretty dicey. Um, and we now know, Churchill didn't talk about this at the time, but we now know because of the, um, the, the records have been uh, revealed that, in fact, the war cabinet did discuss seriously the possibility of a negotiated peace uh, in late May 1940. And this was um, dramatized recently in the film Darkest Hour, which many, many people may have seen. Um, ultimately, the decision is made on the 28th of May, 1940. Churchill, who is very sceptical, as you would imagine, about, about the idea of a negotiated peace, is able to convince his cabinet colleagues, for the time being, that Britain should fight on. This um, internal battle, uh, this sort of cabinet battle, is seen as being, again, it's, you know, this, this, the, the, the idea is, is that Churchill prevails because of his own will, his own... Uh, confidence in in ultimate victory and so forth. Well, I mean, that's true to an extent. But on the other hand, um, if Dunkirk, if the Dunkirk evacuation had failed, as it certainly could have done, there was nothing nothing foreordained about its success. Certainly um, on the day in which Churchill is able to convince his colleagues to fight on, the Royal Navy still thinks that it can only pull off fewer than 50,000 soldiers from the beaches. 
which is, in other words, means leaving most of the British expeditionary force behind. There's still an enormous question mark about whether there will be a British army left to fight the war um, once Dunkirk inevitably falls, as it will do within a, within a few days. Now, had Dunkirk fallen with most of the British expeditionary force captured by the Germans, what would have been the situation then? Would there still have been the same political will to continue fighting and to reject the idea of a negotiated peace? Uh, I find it hard to see a scenario in which Britain is able to continue the war in the same way that it did um, in, in, in real life, um, partly because it doesn't, it doesn't have an army anymore. Um, and it also, the Germans, you know, have several hundred thousand prisoners who are essentially hostages. Um, I, I, I find it hard to imagine that sheer will alone, sheer, sheer belief in destiny and so on and so forth would, would, um, would be a sufficient kind of compensation uh, for a disaster of that kind. So, you know, short answer to it, it, it is, you know, Dunkirk succeeds and that makes it much more possible to imagine Britain holding out for, for, for longer. The question about could Britain have been defeated in the Battle of Britain? Probably in the short term, no, um, simply because um, Britain had actually been preparing for a strategic air war for a very long time. In fact, actually, I think probably over-preparing in some ways and under-preparing for other kinds of military conflicts that it would face. But it had, been, it had been thinking, the RAF had been thinking about a scenario somewhat analogous to the Battle of Britain for a very, very long time. And it had prepared a very, very robust aerial, uh, air defense system with a great deal of, of strength and depth. Um, the Germans were not prepared for the Battle of Britain. They had never actually imagined fighting a battle like this. Um, they don't fight it particularly well or particularly coherently. Um, and I, I think, again, in, in the short term, um, the, the risk that the RAF actually would have been defeated is, is probably uh, exaggerated. Um, so I, I can understand why the chiefs of staff, when they made their analyses and they made their, their recommendations to the cabinet in the summer of 1940, that they said, no, you know, for the time being, we're probably going to be OK. We can probably keep going for now. The bigger question, and again, this, this, this harks back to this question about Anglo-American cooperation, is what would, what would happen beyond that? Um, what would happen in 1941, for instance, with the Germans in control of the European continent? Um, would they try again? Would there be a second Battle of Britain that would take place in 1941, potentially under much more uh, advantageous circumstances for the Germans? Particularly if they, if, if they were able to reach some kind of compromise decision or agreement with the Soviet Union, uh, and it was not yet uh, a sure thing that Germany would invade the Soviet Union at that point. It was entirely possible that some kind of agreement, a long-term agreement might be arranged between the two sides. And if the Americans had decided that Britain wasn't a good bet and had decided to uh, be much, you know, much more hesitant in their cooperation, that I see as being the kind of grim scenario which, um, well, outright defeat is, is, it's hard to say. Military invasion, maybe, although I think that always would have been a bit of a, a long shot, but certainly some kind of petering out of the war in which the British accept um, 
some kind of compromise agreement. Uh, you know, it's it's a very grim scenario. It's one that you know that we we should be very glad that we we avoided. But um, it is, in, I think, it's important to actually face the fact that there was an awful lot of contingent events that were out of our control, which which fortunately went our way. Now, an- another phrase in the book that uh, really struck me was when you described the Blitz as the central mythic experience of Britain's war. I wonder why, in a war where there are so many myths, why you see this as perhaps the most <laughs> fundamental one? That's, a, again, a very, great good question. Um, I think the, the, the terms of the way in which we think about the Second World War were very much set by the Blitz, in, in that the Blitz is, is, of course, a civilian experience. Uh, it is one in which the violence of the Germans is directed primarily not against Britain's military forces, Britain's, you know, uh, soldiers and sailors and airmen, but against ordinary civilians. And unlike the First World War, the First World War is, you know, the overwhelming image that the British have of the First World War is of, you know, Tommies going over the top uh, on the on the Western Front. It's a war, it's a war of uniformed armies. The overwhelming image I would suggest, well, there are, there are a number of images, but I would say some of the most powerful images of the Second World War are, for instance, the photographs, the iconic photographs of St. Paul's Cathedral swathed in, uh, in smoke and flames, you know, as German bombs come down. The images of firemen fighting the, the Blitz in London. The images of bombed out civilians with a kind of cheerful keep calm and carry on attitude and so forth. Um, Again, to, to me, very much it, it evokes this idea of the Shire folk of being, you know, the reason that the British prevail is because of this enormous stoicism that they 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 uh, that they possess, this kind of understated self confidence, uh, this uh, sang froid that their, their their ability to to get through this. Um, now, the, the Blitz, in some ways, is um, an unusual event. It's the only period during the Second World War in which most German violence is directed towards civilians. The, the period from September 1940 to May of 1941, the Blitz pretty much peters out at that point. And although there are some bombings that continue later in the war, and of course there are the, the uh, V1 and V2 attacks that take place in 1944 and 1945, but the intensity of the attack is never the same after May of 1941. Um, it's a mythic experience in some ways because we also see it as being a national experience, which it, it both was and wasn't. Um, it is true that that many parts of the United Kingdom are bombed, uh, so it's not just a, a question of London. Uh, of course, there are you know there, there's an enormous amount of bombing in Birmingham, Coventry, Liverpool, Belfast, uh, the, the Clydeside ports, and 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 so on and so forth. Southampton, Plymouth. So, it, you know, it's it's not a total myth. On the other hand, bombing is not a completely egalitarian experience. About half of the Britons in 1940 are never bombed at all. Uh, and for them, bombing is an experience much as it is for us. It's something that you read about. It's not something that you personally experience. The large, large portions of Britain, particularly rural Britain, is, uh, are escape bombing entirely. And people know that this is not uh, an egalitarian experience in um, in 1940. Indeed, one of the big complaints in towns and cities which have been bombed is, is this phenomenon of so-called blitz tourism, where you get large numbers of people coming in from unblitzed areas to go and have a look at the sites, to go and see 
where the you know get to go into the east end of london for instance and to see you know the 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 bomb streets and so forth and this is as you can imagine enormously resented by the residents of these places who regard themselves as almost being like you know um uh, exhibits in a zoo um and also the civil authorities that regard this kind of tourism as as interfering in the you know the ability to actually carry out repair work and emergency rescue work and and so on and so forth um so the other thing about the Blitz, I suppose, is that it also raises this question about why, did, why ultimately did we prevail? Um, why did Germany's attempt to bomb the British into submission in 1940 and 1941 fail? Um, well, it failed partly because they didn't do a very good job of it. Uh, which might not, you know, if you now, if you'd asked somebody in Coventry in November 1940 were the Germans doing a good job, they might reasonably have objected that you know it seemed seemed like they were doing a pretty good job, having you know raised much of the city centre to the ground. Nonetheless, um, if you look at the pattern of German bombing during the Blitz, it's all over the place. I mean, the Germans are literally making this up as they go along. Uh, they don't really have any great long-term plan. They, their plan al- almost literally is to just fly over a whole bunch of cities and just drop some bombs and basically see what happens. Um, that's not a very good plan. Um, when the British attempt serious strategic bombing of Germany, certainly from 1942 onwards, they do have a plan. In fact, they have a, a, a number of plans. And their, their plans turn out to be... Uh, rather complicated and it takes a great deal of time but the british approach to bombing germany is vastly more sophisticated than the german approach to to bombing britain the other thing is that it's on an altogether different scale as well um britain never experiences the kind of subjection of heavy bombing that german civilians uh have to endure in say 1944 and 1945 and even then even um though the Germans experience a, a, a scale of bombing which is perhaps 10 times greater than that of the, of the London Blitz. Even then, of course, they don't surrender until they are militarily occupied. So this raises questions about the efficacy of bombing at all, about whether bombing was ever actually going to win the war. Uh, certainly the predictions of pre-war air power profits about how effective bombing would be turned out to be greatly exaggerated, or at least they hugely underestimated how difficult it was actually going to be. Um, but if the Germans were able to hold out in the late period of the war, well, what does it say about them? Did they, did they, did they survive because of their national character? Was it a case of keeping calm and carrying on, you know, as the RAF bombed? Or is it, you know, do, do, do we have to look for explanations elsewhere? Now, we've talked about some of the, the threats to Britain during this period. But might it have been the case that actually the Battle of the Atlantic was the most existential threat to British continuation in the war? The importance of the Battle of the Atlantic continues to be understated. Um, again, this was this was a battle in which, were in some ways, in which the British um, had some good preparation, um, and the Germans were always going to be facing some uh, innate difficulties. They had not really built up the fleet particularly the submarine fleet that they would have needed, you know, to be able to subdue the British in the relatively brief time period that they needed to do this. So you can look at the Battle of the Atlantic and say, um, this is a battle in which, you know, involves British naval power, which is, in what, you know, one of Britain's strong suits in 1939. 
uh, that it is a uh, it, it's a battle which Britain has a great deal of experience fighting, and that uh, the Germans are always to some extent you know at a disadvantage. Now that's true um, to some extent. On the other hand, uh, you can also see how. Uh, certainly in the second half of 1940. This is is another example of how the fall of France has all kinds of unfortunate effects for Britain. Um, It is, uh, the fall of France means that German submarines are now able to operate from Western uh, French U-boat bases into the Atlantic. It means that Britain has to redirect much of its um, commercial traffic, its uh, uh, seaborne traffic, away from the East Coast ports, which were particularly the port of London, you know, which had been the busiest uh, of, of the British Isles. And it has to redirect them towards the Western ports, so the, uh, on the Clyde, the Mersey, the Avon, and so forth. This has dangerous uh, military consequences. It also has some dangerous um, logistical consequences, too. I think one of the things that I tried to bring out in the the book was that the Battle of the Atlantic is ultimately about trying to choke off Britain's ability to import the goods that it needs to survive and to and to conduct the war. Now, one way that the Germans can do that is by sinking ships. Uh, and obviously that's the kind of the most direct and obvious way. But they don't, it, that's not the only way that they can do that. Um, every every uh, ton of imports which is delayed or postponed in some ways is, is, a, is a ton that's that's lost and, and it doesn't matter how that actually happens so one of the things that, that one of the, dis, the, the the difficulties that the British face um, and they actually realize that this is something of a crisis by early 1941 is that they're trying to bring in massive amounts of material goods particularly from North America into ports such as Liverpool or or Avonmouth or or um, or uh, the, the Clyde ports and they're not prepared for them they've never they've never dealt with a volume of traffic like this and they've also never dealt with the ki- with the kinds of goods and you get massive buildup of stockpiles of goods on the quaysides ships are unable to unload because the warehouses are full they don't have the kinds of cranes and machinery that they need to actually unload the ships. Now, these these seem like rather prosaic kinds of difficulties compared with the high drama that's going on, you know, uh, in the battle against the U-boats. But it's nonetheless important uh, because if the logistical system breaks down, then Britain will 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 start to uh, find it, you know find itself unable to continue its war economy. And this, in, in, in many ways, is one of the greatest difficulties that the government faces at the beginning of 1941. The Battle of the Atlantic isn't just fought at sea. It's also fought in ports. It's also, it's also takes place in uh, Britain's transportation system and its, uh, its ability to actually manage um, imports and exports. Fortunately, ways are found to get around this, um, but had decisions gone the other way, um, it certainly would have placed Britain in a much more precarious situation um, than it actually was in, in, in 1941. Now, um, in the latter part of the book, we see the war spreading out across the globe. And clearly one of the key moments is Barbarossa. So what does it mean to Britain when the Soviet Union joins the war? And what are the complexities for Britain of forming an alliance with a totalitarian communist regime? So 
the German invasion is both a, a kind of crisis and an opportunity for the British in, 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 in strictly power political terms. Uh, it's a crisis because, of course, what happens if the Germans win uh, really quickly? And most military experts in June of 1941 think that the Germans will sweep through the Soviet Union very quickly. The Joint Intelligence Committee anticipates that the German tanks will be in Moscow in a few months or, or possibly even a few weeks. Now, of course, um, Germany, Nazi Germany, having defeated the Soviet Union, will be in a far stronger position than it, uh, than it already is. And there is actually an invasion scare, an invasion of the British Isles, uh, a second scare in the summer of 1941. You know, what happens if the Germans quickly defeat Stalin, turn around, and then decide to try and knock out the British while they, while, while they still have the chance. So there is this fear that this actually could be hugely to Britain's disadvantage. Um, on the other hand, of course, if the Russians can hold out, then this does represent a new kind of opportunity. Russia could be, if it can survive, a major military ally. And it certainly seems by maybe the, the, the autumn of 1941 is that you know, may, maybe the Soviets are going are, are gonna to be okay. Uh, it's still, it's still not, not a total sure thing, but may, maybe the Russians will be able to hold out. Uh, and if so, of course, Britain is facing a different kind of war because Germany now has to fight on two fronts. Uh, this probably means that Britain has obtained for itself a powerful new ally. Now, that's the kind of the power political way of thinking about things. From the point of view of the kind of moral justification for the war or the framing of the war as being ultimately a good war, Introducing the Soviet Union introdu introduces a whole bunch of new problems. Um, the Soviet Union had been more or less in alliance with Nazi Germany ever since August of 1939. Uh, it, it had participated quite gleefully in the partition of Poland, uh, in the annexation of uh, many parts of Eastern Europe, the Baltic States, parts of Romania, it had uh, fought a completely unprovoked war against Finland in um, the late 1939, the early, early 1940. And the battle uh, that the Finns had fought against the Soviets was regarded with enormous sympathy uh, in Britain. Britain had seriously considered the possibility of attacking the Soviet Union in early 1940, along with the French, uh, partly as a way of sort of kickstarting the war, getting something to happen partly as a way of trying to make um, German-Soviet economic cooperation sort of, you know, to try to, to cut off German supplies of oil which were coming from the Soviet Union and so forth. So you have all of this baggage, uh, this kind of rhetorical baggage, which had taken place in the early part of the war. And now you face the difficulty that the Soviet Union are now going to be the gallant Russian allies uh, of Britain. And this is both awkward, embarrassing somewhat, because it means having to uh, ignore or, or sideline an awful lot of things that have been said about the USSR in the, in the years immediately prior to Barbarossa. It also continues to be a source of evolving problems, because um, Britain, for instance, embarks on an invasion of Iran uh, in the summer of 1941, in cooperation with the Soviet Union. Um, this is one of the perhaps most forgotten events of um, the Second World War. Britain invades Iran uh, ostensibly because the Iranian Shah is flirting with cooperation with the Germans. 
Uh, that's not really the main reason. It's not, it's not totally untrue, but the main reason is that um, having a secure uh, communication line through Iran from the Indian Ocean to um, the, the southern uh, USSR will make it much easier for Britain to provide supplies and assistance to the, the USSR. This is, this is the, the principal motivation. Um, it's, a, it's an invasion which is, uh, even at the time, you know, Anthony Eden feels very uncomfortable. The, the foreign secretary feels very uncomfortable about it. You know, what we're doing to Iran reminds reminds me a little bit of what the what the Soviets did to Finland in 1939, or for that matter, what the the Germans did to Poland in uh, uh, earlier that year. It's it's um, it's defensible on purely sort of ruthless, pragmatic grounds, but it is uh, it it adds an ethical complexity to um, the. Um, Britain's fighting the war. And I think this, this really continues for the, for the remainder of the war. What, the thing that the German invasion of the Soviet Union does is that in some ways, it makes it much more possible for Britain to actually bring the war to a victorious conclusion. On the other hand, it also means that the war will never be so morally straightforward ever again. Neville Chamberlain had gone to war in September 1939 against the totalitarian powers of uh, the, the chief totalitarian power of Europe, which was very much in league with the Soviet Union. Now, of course, Britain is on the side of one of Europe's great totalitarian powers, one in which, um, you know, Stalin has had no compunction about murdering millions of his fellow citizens, his fellow uh, Soviet citizens. This will continue throughout the war itself um, and the behavior of the Russians both internally and also amongst the conquered territories that they uh, quote-unquote liberate in 1944 and 1945 is going to be uh, a, a, a real kind of moral black mark upon the, on the Allies. I don't think that we've ever fully come to terms with that. I think we, we have a very schizophrenic attitude towards the um, the the uh, the Soviet role in the war because on the one hand you know we 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 want to think of the Second World War as being an unambiguously good war on the other hand the uncomfortable fact is that one of the reasons why so few Britons had to die uh, certainly compared say with the First World War you know the British military and civilian casualties combined are a fraction of what they had been in the First World War. Now, that's, that's obviously something that we look on with a good deal of relief and, and gratitude. But part of the reason for that is because Russians died in their place. Um, perhaps Britain would have been able to win the war anyway without Soviet assistance, but it's certainly the cost, the, the cost in lives, the cost in blood would have been far greater. Um, we can be relieved about that, but it also means that to some extent the war was not simply one against totalitarianism. It was a one totalitarian power fighting another totalitarian power, uh, which happened to be on our side. And while we can be grateful for that in, in some terms of the consequences it, it had, uh, it also means that the war was, was just never so easy to categorize in moral terms ever again. And people did struggle about this at the time, you know, even at the, at the highest levels of office that, you know, what, what, you know, what are we doing anymore? What exactly are we trying to achieve in a war in which we now find ourselves hand in glove with Marshal Stalin? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
The idea in September 1941 of actually landing a British army on the coast of France, for instance, uh, and fighting all the way to, to Berlin seems like such an impossible kind of idea. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. And another aspect of the increased globalisation of the war is the fact that several British colonies are either involved in fighting or threatened by, by fighting. Um, how did Britain balance the competing demands of defending the home islands and also its global empire? Yes, another great question. Um, it... The decision by Italy to uh, declare war on Britain in June of 1940, and then much later, the decision by Japan to attack Britain's uh, East Asian colonies, um, enormously complicates Britain's uh, military strategy. Um, When Britain begins the war in September 1939, um, the German threat, such as it exists against uh, British territory, is largely against the British Isles themselves. And Britain is, is fairly well suited to, 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 to dealing with that problem. As I've mentioned, you know, Britain already has, of course, it has the strongest navy in the world. It has a, a, a very robust air defense system and so on. And so even with the defeat of France, although this has long-term implications, um, it means that the, the, the short-term defense of the British Isles is probably fairly secure. Um, But Italy's decision to invade means, first of all, that uh, British security in uh, North Africa in the Middle East is is compromised. Um, This has already been an area which has been, you know, uh, difficult for the British to control. In the 1930s, they had faced uh, a major uh, insurgency in in Palestine, what's today Israel, uh, the, the so-called Arab Revolt from 1936 to 39, which had taken uh, a, a very large amount of military force to be able to ultimately to suppress. Uh, they have now to deal with the Italian threat to 
um, to Egypt and the Suez Canal, to the uh, East African colonies as well. Um, and the Italians in the short term are able to do quite a bit of, quite a bit of damage there. Um, Britain has to make some difficult decisions. Um, in 1941, for instance, uh, there is the question of which is ultimately more important, uh, East Asia or the Mediterranean? Um, Britain can defend one of these places adequately and perhaps even uh, achieve victory over enemy forces there, but it can't do both at the same time and also defend the, the British Isles. Now, the question comes up in early 1941. Britain has actually done pretty well uh, up to that point against the Italians in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, it, at one point, it even seemed as if they were going to defeat the Italians entirely in, on, the, on the North African coast, and then the Germans get involved. And Britain gets distracted with uh, conflicts going on in Greece and so forth as well. So the opportunity is lost. But they're building up a very large military force uh, on the, on, uh, in Cairo and in the, uh, the base on the Suez Canal. Um, the question is, but what about Singapore? What about Malaya? What about Hong Kong? What about Borneo and these other, uh, these other colonies? The Japanese are not yet at war in early 1941, but they are beginning to represent an increasingly obvious threat. And the chief of the Imperial General Staff at the time, uh, General Dill, raises this question with Churchill because, as Dill points out, um, there is not only the matter of, the, uh, of our colonies themselves and the value that they have, and they do have a, a great deal of value. Uh, Malaya's tin exports provided vast amounts of uh, dollar uh, hard currency, for instance, for the British Empire, which is really important at a moment when the, the Americans expect that all material aid has to be paid for in dollars. But there's also the question of the Australians and the New Zealanders. Um, if Singapore falls, if uh, Malaya falls, this will jeopardize greatly um, Australia's security situation. Now, Churchill had, before the war, and actually in the early stages of the war, had always reassured the Australian and New Zealand governments that if the, uh, if the situation finally arose in which Britain had to make a decision between defending, say, Egypt on the one hand or Singapore on the other, that it would always defend Singapore because ultimately um, Egypt falling would be, a, would be a, a major defeat, but it wouldn't necessarily mean the end of the British Empire. Whereas a defeat in East Asia might potentially lead to uh, a Japanese invasion of Australia or, or, or New Zealand. And so he reassures the, reassures the, the Dominion governments that uh, this is one of the reasons why they're willing to send troops to fight uh, the Italians in the, in the Mediterranean because they know that ultimately Britain will, will, will back them. Now, Churchill's changed his mind by early 1941. He's ultimately decided if he can't defend everywhere, he will skip defending Singapore. Um, his argument is that, first of all, the Germans and the Italians are, are not in Singapore. They're in, they're, in, they're in Egypt. That is where the war is actually going on. Um, and he has to deal with the war that's actually taking place, not a speculative war against the Japanese that might, may, might happen in six months or a year or might not. He has to impress the Americans. Remember that the, the, the Americans are still, you know, are, are, are still a little cagey about, you know, uh, Britain's long-term chances. He has to impress the Americans with the idea that Britain is serious 
about winning the war, which means continuing to fight in the only place that, in which it's really possible, which is, which is Egypt um, in early 1941, um, which means sending the bulk of supplies which are available to the Mediterranean and not to East Asia, the East Asian colonies. They are clearly not in a position, uh, Singapore is not in a position to defend itself if the Japanese la- launch a full-throated uh, invasion. Churchill hopes that it won't happen, that ultimately the Japanese are bluffing, uh, and that even if they're not bluffing, well, maybe the United States will step in anyway and ultimately defend Britain's territories um, in East Asia. And it's a gamble. It's a gamble which, um, well, it has a rather complicated kind of outcome in the end. Um, Britain does ultimately prevail in Egypt, um, it does, of course, ultimately prevail in, um, in, in East Asia in the sense that the Americans do get involved. Ultimately, the, the war is won in the Pacific. But it's a war which proves in the short term to be pretty disastrous for British imperial power. The fall of Singapore, because of its inadequate preparations, ultimately means that uh, British imperial power uh, east of Suez will never be the same again. Uh, it's an enormous symbolic as well as military defeat for the British Empire. Um, it's rather ironic, of course, that one of the principal goals that, Ch- that Churchill had had in becoming prime minister in the first place was to defend the sovereignty and the longevity of the British Empire. You know, at, at one point he famously says that I've not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the, the, the liquidation of the British Empire. But he also has to make a number of hard strategic choices, uh, which are not agreed by, you know, the, the, he doesn't receive universal agreement by all his colleagues. And one of them is this uh, decision to make the defense of East Asia ultimately a secondary concern. And um, as I'll get into in the the second book, which I'm working on right now, which deals with the second part of the war, this proves to have some some pretty disastrous consequences for British imperial power. Now, just finally, as as you've just pointed out, this is only the first half of a a two-volume history of the war. But when we get to the end of this book, how would you describe the state of Britain's war effort? Has, Has Britain survived the worst? That's a great question. Um, I I end the war actually on September the 3rd, 1941, which is, has, has a, it's a convenient date in some ways because it ties in with a number of things which are going on at that very moment, which, which are going to prove to have long-term significance. Uh, For instance, um, the United States has just decided or is on the verge of deciding that it will, um, fight a de facto Battle of the Atlantic against the German U-boats. Up till this point, the American role in the Battle of the Atlantic has been a rather sort of hands-off. The Americans have been providing material assistance in convoys across the Atlantic, but they haven't really gotten involved in a military sense. Now, in early September 1941, uh, an American destroyer, the USS Greer, is attacked by a German submarine, and Roosevelt uses this as an opportunity to scale up the American military uh, role in the Atlantic. So from this point onwards, American uh, warships will begin to escort convoys and track down submarines, and so German submarines and so forth. This is, uh, although America's still not quite in the war yet, it's clearly, a, we're, we're now getting to the state where it's, it's more a matter of time than anything else. Uh, 
Um, it's also an important moment because this is the moment, more or less, in which the Japanese decide that they're going to attack the European colonies in East Asia. And finally, it's, it's a very important moment in terms of world as well as British history because in September of 1941, Britain decides to embark on a nuclear weapons program. Um, enough scientific evidence is, exists at that point that the atomic bomb uh, is feasible and could actually be constructed. Um, and Churchill actually gives the go-ahead to begin a nuclear weapons program. Ultimately, of course, that nuclear weapons program will transfer across the Atlantic and will become the Manhattan Project, which leads to the atomic bombs which are used against Japan. But that's that's a, a story for another day. Um, so it's 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 a, it's a convenient moment in that in in that sense, in that it's leading on to events which are clearly going to have great uh, a great portent further on. Britain's situation is much better in lots of ways in September 1941 than it had been, say, a year earlier. So um, at the end, but you know, in September 1940, the Battle of Britain was still taking place. The Blitz had just begun. The United States was still a very uncertain kind of, uh, of participant in the war, not really a participant at all. Um, the Soviet Union was still a de facto ally of Germany at that point. Those things have changed uh, a year later. Uh, the Soviet Union is fighting against the Germans, although whether it will ultimately be able to avoid defeat is unclear. The Americans are gravitating towards war uh, much faster than they had done before. The Lend-Lease Assistance Program has begun, which makes it far easier for the British to actually pay for the war than, uh, than it had been a year earlier. I think the, the biggest question for Britain in September 1941, when the book ends isn't so much about, are we going to be defeated? Which had been the big question of the, the, the previous year. I think at this point now, it's not that defeat is impossible. It's just that um, it's more a problem for the medium or the long term rather than the, rather than the short term. There's no immediate risk, I think, of uh, you know, a massive German invasion or anything like that. Um, but the bigger question is, how are we going to win the war? If, we, if we're not going to get defeated... You know, we also have to figure out a way in which we're actually going to win this thing. Um, and that is, is much more difficult to answer. And Churchill struggles, frankly, to come up with a completely plausible answer uh, about how he's going to do that. Well, bombing is a possibility, but the bombing effort of uh, the RAF against Germany at that point has still not really had any great significance. It's proven to be a real disappointment in lots of ways. It's really not, not, a, not achieved a great deal. There had been hopes that perhaps the conquered peoples of Europe might be, might be encouraged to rise up and uh, wage guerrilla wars against the German occupiers, that this would be a kind of way of, of fighting a land war in Europe without actually having to send British troops. Britain could instead provide assistance to resistance movements in, in Europe and so forth. And, you know, there had been some, move, some moves towards this by creating special operations executive and so forth. But it's still, you know, the idea that this is actually going to pin down most of the German army uh, ultimately proves to be, you know, a, a, a little bit of a, a, an unrealistic hope. There are other strategies that are mooted. But the idea in September 1941 of actually landing a British army on the coast of France, for instance, uh, and fighting all the way to to Berlin seems like such an impossible kind of idea 
just the, the the logistics of it, just the idea of being able to fight this still pretty undiminished German army, uh, that it's it's not taken very seriously. Um, you know, it will take many years and uh, you know uh, many many changed circumstances to make the the idea of a of D Day, as it would become in 1944, in, in any way realistic. So it's it's a moment. I think September 1941 is this kind of transitional moment where you you're moving away from the 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 fear of immediate defeat to this bigger question about a how are we going to win the war and b also you know how are we going to win the war and survive as a great power. Uh, Neville Chamberlain's great fear about war with Germany had never, in a way, been about defeat. He had always, just as Churchill, you know, had always believed that Britain would be victorious. Well, in a in a funny kind of way, Ch- Chamberlain did too. He always actually had confidence that ultimately Britain would prevail in a long war against Germany. What he was frightened of wasn't defeat, but it was what would victory look like. Uh, Chamberlain had always worried that uh, Britain would be so diminished by the cost of victory, emerge the British Empire would never be the same again, that ultimately um, real power would move, would shift towards Moscow and Washington, D.C., that they would, you know, the Soviet Union and America would be the real victors. Now, um, Chamberlain is dead by September 1941. Churchill has taken over the mantle of victory. Um, but he still doesn't really have a good answer to that question about, you know, both about how they'll win and also how is he going to maintain British power in a world which is going to look very different uh, after uh, the Germans and the other Axis powers are defeated. And much of what my second book will be about will be about Churchill having to, and, and other British politicians, and, and in, a, in a broader sense, the British people, are going to have to deal with those two irreconcilable or very, very hard to reconcile uh, goals. Winning the war, but also maintaining the Britain and the British Empire that they, they, they recognise. That was Alan Allport. His book, Britain at Bay, The Epic Story of the Second World War, 1938-41, to is out now, published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Anita Anand will be giving a lecture on her book, The Patient Assassin. <laughs>